party people, and welcome to You Scared of This, a weekly podcast in which two grown men watch Nickelodeon's contemporary children's horror miniseries, Are You Afraid of the Dark, and try to figure out if it is scary. How, how about that? A new description. <laughs> I, it was, I mean, it was overdue. Yeah. <laughs> or I guess it was due. I am one of your hosts. My name is David Dykus, and I am joined by my best friend, live from America's heartland, <laughs> Austin, Texas. <laughs> Just as soon as some of the coasts are swallowed up. <laughs> Eli Phillips. <laughs> Dykus, how you doing? Uh, I am doing all right. Excited to talk about part two of this of this trilogy. How are you doing, Eli? I'm doing, uh, well, <laughs> let me be honest here. I was about to say I'm doing great, and that's mostly true, but since the last time we recorded, I do have an update for you, Dykus. All right, let's hear it. I have shingles. Let's give him a hand, everybody. Eli <laughs> I finally got has him. shingles. They said it couldn't well, be done. How did you get shingles? So, you know what? <laughs> that's your business. We don't need to know. <laughs> what you do in your spare time is none of our business. Mm-hmm. Cut to me on the roof, rolling around in shingles. <laughs> Get the fuck out of here! <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm 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 recovering from a strange ailment, usually exclusive to old people. But otherwise, I'm great. <laughs> well, it's better to get it when you're young. Right, right, right. <laughs> I had shingles when I was like 13. I don't know what the fuck I was doing back then, but and I, I, I feel tell your pain. everyone about that. Because they're always like, shouldn't you be 80 before you get shingles? And I'm like, my best friend got it at 12. Fuck off. And he's like the peak of health. I Well, I was at the peak of health at 12. I was a frail, skeletal kid back then. That was before high school gym class. Right. Well, welcome to the club. I wish you a speedy recovery with minimal itching. It's, yeah, yeah, it's, uh, that's, thankfully, it's not too bad. But anyway. I suggest you work it into your Halloween costume. You could go as, like... A, a pariah. I'm going as the leper that Jesus cured. <laughs> I'm going to go to one of those one of those Christian horror uh, haunted hell houses. houses. Yes, yeah. <laughs> make the shingles work for you. Right, right. They don't own me. Well, switching to something equally scary. This week we're moving on to part two of the Are You Afraid of the Dark revival, entitled Opening Night, and it is. Just like last week, this episode was written by Ben David Grabinski and directed yep. by Dean Israelite, and this premiered on Nickelodeon on October 18th, 2019. As of this recording, that was two days ago. So just to recap what happened in the first episode, in case, you're, in case you can't be bothered to listen to our, uh, our podcast on that. So previously on Are You Afraid of the Dark, we met Rachel, a young teenage girl who moves to a small town, joins the Midnight Society, tells a story about an evil carnival led by a man named Mr. Top Hat, and then the carnival... Mr. T. Mr. T. And then the carnival, called the Carnival of Doom, seemingly becomes real and visits their town. And one of Rachel's classmates has been abducted by the carnival. Yeah, and episode two is going to sort of dive back into that and have the kids searching for their missing classmate, Adam. But before we get into that, Dykus, I think you'll notice that this whole time I've been sitting somewhere different than I usually do. That's right, I'm over here at the Nick News Desk. Oh no. We said we weren't doing this again! We don't have a choice. Cue don't up that make me new drop business oh, music. God. <laughs> As of 30 minutes ago today, I got a, I got a news alert. That says Why giant. Did we record this thirty minutes ago. Giant Nickelodeon theme park ice rink opening at the American Dream in New Jersey this week. 
Nickelodeon has a theme park opening this week. I'm sitting here in sullen silence. What's wrong, Dykus? You aren't excited about the largest indoor theme park in North America that's opening next Friday? Is this just the largest one that happens to be opening next Friday of all the parks <laughs> opening next Friday? Of every indoor amusement park in America opening next Friday, this is the biggest one. Well, you, pat yourself on the back, New Jersey. Finally, you can be proud of something. All right, moving on. <laughs> I'm kidding. I don't feel I have nothing against the state of New Jersey. Uh, it's a lovely state. The last time I was there, I said it looked like every episode of Are You Afraid of the Dark? Uh, let's go Let's go to this. Let's go see all our favorite Nickelodeon stars at the American Dream Mall. Uh, stars like, according to this picture, Raphael from Ninja Turtles and Jimmy Neutron and Patrick Starr. Wait a minute. They're billing... Okay, so these are not actually stars. These are just people in, like, disturbing mascot costumes. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I thought we were going to be able to meet, like... I don't know, Tom Kenny or something. DJ McHale. Or DJ McHale. <laughs> He's not there as an attraction. He's like, no, nah, I just brought my kids. Or Ron Oliver. <laughs> uh, but yeah, uh, I just happened to be searching for Nickelodeon and got a news update that there is a, an amusement park opening, and they announced it 30 minutes ago, I guess, uh, on this website. So get your tickets. All right, let's all move right. on. To all of our New Jersey fans, check it out and report back to us. Do we have Please. any? Um, the closest person that I know of would be John Brell, who is in New York. John, you have your assignment. <laughs> go, t- go to this hopefully haunted indoor amusement park at the American Dream Mall and let us know if it's any good. All right. Is there any more Nick news? You know what? No, I'm not even going to ask. <laughs> We're moving on. What's this? Three seconds ago, there was a new announcement. No, I don't care where Nickelodeon is opening another branded... <laughs> theme park, hotel, Korean spa, anything. Our podcast, the the character arc of our podcast is you getting excited about Nickelodeon and then slowly getting soured on Nickelodeon over the course of four years. It's not Nickelodeon. <laughs> it's just this extends the podcast and gives me more to edit. <laughs> I can only loop the Nick News theme so many times before. <laughs> you don't have a 10 hour loop of it on YouTube right now? Oh, man, that's a good idea. I should have that. <laughs> Anyway, uh, let's jump into opening night, shall we? Okay. We pick up right where the last episode left off. There's a scorpion inexplicably crawling on the window. Uh, and the Carnival of Doom is in town, and everyone in Rachel's school has been given tickets. And we should clarify that since last week, you verified that scorpions cannot crawl on glass. Yeah, I checked Wikipedia. I did my due diligence. Scorpions can't do that. <laughs> Wish they could. Not possible. Magic scorpions. All of the Midnight Society are freaked out by this. They call an emergency meeting. And much to my surprise, the other kids immediately turn on Rachel and demand an explanation for why she's doing this. I really liked this scene because a few things happen. One, yeah, they all, like, they all freak out, I think, rather appropriately. Because from their perspective, it absolutely looks like a prank on her part. Like, she knew this carnival was coming to town so she wrote this story that's the most logical explanation and so they're all like hey new girl what the fuck we let you into our secret club and it feels like you tricked us but the other thing that i really like is all of these kids are going man it's really weird being at the campfire in the daytime i've never done this before i had that marked in my notes too they go there right after school and it is very weird seeing the uh the campfire in broad daylight yeah yeah um rachel insists to them that her story is based on dreams that she had things that scared her but that she had no idea that there was a real Carnival of Doom. They're all sort of like 
grappling with this fear of what if this is real? Like, what are we supposed to do? Which I really enjoy because it's nice that they're, that this show is long enough that they can actually spend time on these kids lingering on the idea of like, this is not reality. You know, normally we don't have time for the kid. Like they just have to accept, oh, there is a monster and I'm having to deal with horrible things. Uh, and they rush through it. But we actually get to see the kids linger on the existential dread of, is this thing real? Did you appreciate the the short going to the library montage that is packed within this? <laughs> yeah. So that is another thing that I thoroughly enjoy is that the kids are like, uh, I looked, the Carnival of Doom has no social media presence, no Yelp reviews. They're not online at all. May- and uh, Graham says, maybe we should look at more like physical evidence. And Kiko says, what, you mean like go to the library and do research in books? Yeah, I already did that. And it does a hard cut to her blowing the dust off of a book in a way that we joke about, and then looking at microfiche. They cram it. It's only like five seconds long, but it was very much appreciated. It feels like a almost like a like a Family Guy style joke cutaway, but it's very well executed in this moment. So none of the kids understands what's happening. Rachel tries to rally the troops and say, hey, I don't know what's going on, but we've got to go rescue Adam. Like, clearly this carnival has spirited him away, and they're like, no way. They really outright refuse to help her. And then as she's leaving, she overhears them saying, oh, well, maybe this was a bad idea. We're going to vote to kick her out or keep her in. At home, Rachel is crying in bed. And we get a a really surreal moment where she looks up and sees Mr. T, Mr. Top Hat, looking down at her from the ceiling. Yeah, um, this is such an odd moment. And this is one of those things that I think would have either been rushed or cut in an actual episode of Are You Afraid of the Dark? Um, but she dreams that he's on her ceiling and he's like, shh. And then he drops a coin into her hand. A golden coin with a scorpion on one side. And a skull Uh, on the other. That coin is dope. It's pretty dope. I actually, Uh, after we watched this, I got online to see if I could find 3D models of a skull relief and a scorpion relief that were good enough that I could 3D print a a replica of this coin. Oh, that Uh, would be awesome. Can you do it? Stay tuned. Ah, that's... Uh, but she comes to, and it's it's and it's not clear whether this actually happened or if it was just a crazy hallucination. The next day, Rachel begins her one woman campaign to save Adam. She posts missing person flyers with his face all over, not just the school, but all over town. Yeah, she does the the TV thing of like the camera pans down a sidewalk, and every telephone pole and streetlight has his picture taped to it. I really enjoyed that when she's trying to convince the Midnight Society to help her, Akiko goes, Studies show signs like these don't work. But sure, I'll tape some litter to the walls, why not? That was great. I, I love how uh, cynical Akiko is. Yeah, she's. there are times when I think her the actress's delivery is not great, but I can't tell if that's just that the writing is not great for her, or if the actress is... I, I don't know. But there are other times where she hits better than any other character for me. So as you pointed out, the Midnight Society come back to Rachel and say, we've changed our mind, we're going to help you. Yeah, this is because uh, Gavin rallies the troops because it's clear that he has romantic feelings for her, right? Right, right. Yeah. And that will that will be reinforced as the episode goes on. Uh, so they agree to help her put up these posters. Later on, we see the ink melt off the posters very supernaturally. I really liked this. Um, it's just sort of a cheesy CGI effect. But the idea that Mr. Top Hat and the carnival is this sort of atmosphere that has permeated the whole town and that nothing she does is in her control, it has a very Stephen King vibe to it. Like, this feels like a dairy main sort of problem. Yeah. And I really liked 
like the camera is slowly pulling back as the ink on all of these posters of Adam slowly melts away. It's really good. At one point, they call Akiko's brother, Hideo, the police officer. Graham calls Hideo and puts on a terrible fake Scottish accent (laughs) and convinces him to go check out the carnival to look for, for Adam, the missing kid. Uh, I thought this scene was really well written. I thought the comedy in it was good. Graham, when he's on the phone, is like, uh, and, and I'm calling about a hot tip about a crime. I am, I'm an adult, not a child. <laughs> I thought his Scottish accent wasn't. I mean, it's bad. It's it's really hacky, but it's it could have been worse. He's been better than I could have. Yeah, it's it's not a. It's, it's I have to assume the director said, please do your best Scottish accent and not do a bad one, <laughs> because it's good enough to be like. This is probably his best. <laughs> uh, I thought the whole scene was funny. Uh, they give Hideo a tip that he needs to go to the carnival and investigate. Um, and then they, they you know, sort of bug off and, and leave that plot line to be, which I really enjoy. I like that Hideo is being, like, brought into this. I like that this movie is addressing things like Googling the carnival and why don't we just call the cops and all yeah. of those th- all of those like things that are sort of cliche complaints about horror these days like oh what about cell phones what about the internet what about the police like all of those things are actually being addressed in a way that i think is is pretty deft so they have all formulated this plan they're going to go to the carnival of doom and look for adam and hopefully not encounter mr topat uh before they go to the carnival rachel has another possibly supernatural experience where uh, definitely her, supernatural, right? Okay, a definitely supernatural experience where one of her pencils comes to life. She has written the question, am I crazy, on one of her her ink and paper drawings of Mr. Top Hat. Her pencil comes to life and it, and responds, what do you remember? This is, so there are a couple of things in this scene that are, like, worth discussing. One is, she's way too good of an artist. <laughs> uh, compared to What? Compared to a 14-year-old, she needs to chill the fuck out. Compared to me. <laughs> Someone There's who lazily rub. went through art school. <laughs> um, the other thing that we need to discuss here is I really like how they are sort of doing this slow drip of information about why Rachel is connected to this carnival. This is a mystery that they are establishing that I thoroughly enjoy. Mm-hmm. Um, not just in like a are you afraid of the dark sort of this is this is good for a kid's TV show kind of way. Like, I'm excited to get to the last episode because of all of these little hints that they are dropping, that there is some sort of connection between Rachel and Mr. Top Hat. The fact that he visits her in her dreams and put all of this in her brain and is clearly watching her and, you know, ghost hands are like writing her messages on art of him. Like, this is genuinely interesting at this point. And I... Didn't think the CGI in the scene was great, but I did think that the scene itself was really cool. Yeah, they're not overplaying their hand here, hinting at this kind of bigger other story about Rachel's past. I do think, and we'll talk about this more at the end maybe, but I do think that the big problem we're going to run into is how slow of a drip they're doing. I really worry that the last episode is going to be a shit ton of exposition or a really, really simplified explanation. Let's let's save that discussion for the end because I want to talk yeah. about the the storytelling in this episode and potentially the next episode. So this uh, is interrupt. This whole scene is interrupted when Gavin shows up. We are reintroduced to Rachel's goofy mom in a scene that is just brimming with awkward tension as they ride to the carnival together. It is, as the kids would say, cringy. It is super cringy. Uh, so we do get and we get more indie rock. 
Yeah, yeah, they've got a that indie rock soundtrack for this uh, for this miniseries has made its its return. Uh, while Cheyenne and I were watching, I can't remember if it was this scene or not, but uh, there's some scene where like Rachel and and Gavin are making moony eyes at each other, and she goes, "I just think that he looks like a baby Beto O'Rourke," and now that's all I see. <laughs> it's that he is baby Beto O'Rourke. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? I think Beto's a handsome man with a buttery smooth voice, so I'm you know I'm all for it, and clearly Rachel and her mom are both into it. They're both, they're both way into that. <laughs> but Rachel's mom is like the thirstiest person in any episode oh. of Are You Afraid of the Dark Ever? Oh my God, we'll get there. It's, yes. the, the thirstiness <laughs> has not even begun yet. So at the carnival, all the players have arrived. Akiko is there with her personal cinematographer to shoot a documentary about the Carnival of Doom to get all, as much photographic and video evidence as they can. This is where we get the one stilted line from Akiko they're like you make documentaries she's like no i make films and kevin's like i like movies and she goes i like films he just goes i don't know what that means and i really like again her delivery is stilted but i kind of like the joke of her being overly serious and the other characters not knowing how to deal with her i feel like i knew people like that when i was uh you know learning tv production in college i feel like i was a person like that in high school and college unfortunately like that might when be true. When I wasn't a goofy dumbass, I was an overly serious dumbass. So Akiko was there with her assistant. All four of the other members of the Midnight Society are there, and Hideo is there to uh, follow up on the tip. This is this is also where we get our epic walking in slow motion towards the camera shot of the Midnight Society. This is the this is the silver sight moment of this miniseries. So they enter the carnival. They see the same creepy clown ticket vendor from the story we get a funny moment where graham talk reveals that he's a musician and talks about his his musical influences little tangerine dream little vangelis a lot of wang chung yeah did you like that i i mean that's a that's a hacky joke but yeah i laughed at it (laughs) uh during the scene with the carnival ticket guy the one who had his eyes stitched shut in rachel's story uh, she pauses with him after everyone else moves on. She's like, hey, I'm sorry, but like, have you seen this kid? And she hands him one of the flyers. And this is where she discovers what happened to her flyers because she hands the sheet of paper to the guy and he says, what kid? And that's when Rachel realizes that the ink has melted off of all of her flyers and she's just holding a blank sheet of paper. Once they're in the carnival, they hear Mr. Top Hat's assistant. What was his name? Bartholomew? Yeah. Yeah. They hear Bartholomew beckoning everyone to the big tent. Uh, They go inside. Akiko and her friend are trying to film this whole event using a very poorly concealed iPhone in a popcorn bag. They have, they've taken, so you're not allowed to have cameras in the, uh, in the amusement park, which again, they're addressing how the technology is handled in this horror story. I appreciate that. Uh, When the kids are walking inside, there's a sign that says no filming and Akiko kicks the sign over and goes, I'm a rebel. (laughs) It's really bad. So her solution to this is to take a popcorn bag, empty it, cut a small hole in it, and hold the phone. Not a small hole. This is, this must be her first time filming undercover because she does not do a good job. I mean, she specifically said she doesn't do documentaries, so I'm sure she's never had to hide a camera before. But yeah, like, why would you choose this solution? They're having to hold a popcorn bag sideways, so it's very clear (laughs) that they're not just holding popcorn. (laughs) Very inconspicuous. So once they're seated, Bartholomew goes through his soul spiel, and much to the kid's horror, they see Mr. Top Hat in the flesh. The Emperor of the Night, the friend to no man. 
king of the big top. So, uh, yeah, they run into Mr. Top Hat. He, he does his whole spiel that he did uh, inside of the story as well. You, things are going to scare you. Things are going to shock you. But it's all part of the show. It's all part of the show. They keep reemphasizing that line. And I'm not sure how I feel about that being built up so much. Like, they have to pay off the it's all part of the show twist in some really interesting way for as much as they've repeated it. Rachel has another supernatural moment where it appears that her friends just vanish, and then she looks down and sees herself on her own missing person poster. He looks directly at her inside of this hallucination. He's like, I'm so glad you could make it, Rachel. And then everyone is gone and the spotlight is on her. I really like just the two of them alone inside of the tent. It kind of feels like the scenes in Star Wars where Rey and Kylo Ren, like, force mind meld, and it's just the oh, two yeah. of them talking, even though they're in rooms full of other people. Um, it's this weird, like, terrifying, intimate moment with the hero and the villain. Uh, I really liked it. Once she snaps out of it, she looks across the tent and sees Adam, the missing kid, on the other side of the of the ring. He is just standing there dead-eyed like he had his brain scooped out or something, and then he disappears, and they all go hunting for him. Oh, and Mr. Top Hat reveals the coin that we saw in the dream, says it's hidden in the park, tells everyone to go find it. Yeah, it's a Willy Wonka-style treasure hunt, and whoever finds this coin gets to gets access to a secret part of the park. It's funny you mentioned that. Uh, I was looking at a review of, of these episodes recently that compared Mr. Top Hat to evil Willy Wonka. Yeah, I think he has referred to his character that way in an interview, uh... He's He has, I think, referred to himself as an evil Willy Wonka, which I think is accurate. So at this point, the kids separate, and we kind of get four stories happening in parallel with one another. They go after Adam. All the other kids see him. They don't know where he has run off to, and so they split up. Akiko and her friend continue filming the park. Louise and Graham decide they're going to check the Ferris wheel. Hideo, and... the cop, is going to find Mr. Top Hat himself. And Rachel and Gavin, of course, check out the Tunnel of Love. The ill-named Tunnel of Love. So I'm going to, rather than cutting back and forth between these, let's just quickly recount what happens to each of them. Basically, everyone experiences something supernatural. Uh, The first thing that we'll talk about is the Ferris wheel, where Louise and Graham get stuck at the top of the Ferris wheel as they realize that the bolts holding their carriage in place are slowly unscrewing themselves. And it's sort of this ticking time bomb of these two are going to fall to their deaths. It's a very final destination. And at the last second, the their cart seemingly just screws itself back in. Yeah. It's uh, very tense. While that is happening, Akiko and her sidekick realize that they have seen Adam in the footage they were filming. They also realize that despite the fact that the camera was on Mr. Top Hat the whole time, he's not there. Akiko makes a really sarcastic remark. She's like, what do you mean he's not there? You either didn't film him or, he could, or what, he's invisible? And then she goes, oh. Oh, yeah, I, I guess he's invisible. <laughs> and sure enough, you see the spotlight moving around as though someone is there and he's not there in the footage. So they realize he's a ghost. But then all of a sudden they are being chased by clowns. There are clowns on stilts. There are little people clowns. There are big clowns. They're being chased by all the clowns. Yes, probably the most fast paced part of the entire episode. They are chased by this this mob of clowns. And Dykus, we need to discuss the fact that this is definitely the most important scene in the two episodes of this miniseries that has happened so far. Oh, absolutely. Talk us through it. What do we see here? All right. Put on that record, Dykus. Let me hear my music because you guys know it's time. My random observation of of crap in the background of the millennium. (laughs) 
Akiko and her sidekick are being chased by clowns through the park. The camera is cutting wildly. There is a massive burst of flame, a huge explosion. And at like 31 minutes and 4 seconds, in the background, there is a child or a teen standing there, staring directly at the camera, unmoving. And this person is wearing a Zebo the Clown mask. I cannot believe I missed this. The, the two times that I watched it. I was so mad at you. <laughs> I let you down. I let the fans down. But no, it's... I I can I can confirm now it's there and it's awesome. There it's it is a perfect mask of the Zebo the Clown doll mannequin thing from Laughing in the Dark. It's it's not like the it's not a person with their face painted like Aaron Traeger was in the episode. It's just a mask of the the prop. And there's it's not even like the person is wearing a clown costume. It's just a normal civilian standing there unmoving staring at the camera in a zebo the clown mask that yeah that's the thing this looks like the kind of mask that you should be able to buy at your local halloween shop disappointingly enough i have done a google search myself i have gone to the library and checked old books <laughs> no such mask exists well we're going to tweet at dj McHale and demand it <laughs> Please go to change.org and type in the words <laughs> Zebo the Clown Mask to find the petition that I have started. I encourage all of you, please help me out here. No, it's called um, Zebo the Clown Mask Win. <laughs> this is like, I actually was reading articles about this episode. Um, you know, there were like interviews done and stuff. And there is a very sort of strange reference where the director is talking about, oh yeah, we make, he's like, we don't want people to need to have a history of are you afraid of the dark to watch this so we're not making the references important but we're putting them there for fans and then the article goes on to say that several crew members and cast members and staff all got excited after they filmed a certain scene and they were all asking about a cliffhanger moment and what it meant for the story and the series um, I don't know if they're referencing this moment, but in my heart, I believe I want to believe that like this is something that the the creative team put in and then didn't discuss with anyone, and just the diehard fans who were working on the show were like, whoa, 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 back up! I know what the fuck that was. Like, what are you doing here? Uh, and that's what I'm wondering: is like, is there a plan for this, or were they just having fun with me? I hope. Actually, I don't care. Either way, I'm I'm so excited. It's all part of the show, Eli. It's all part of the show. Uh, so Akiko and her friend get cornered inside of the big top tent. They make it all the way back there. There's a very cool shot of Oh, a... I love this. I know what you're going to say. <laughs> we talked last week about how good the cinematography in this was. Uh, they're in the big top tent, and the big top tent is made of like white and black striped, uh, very Tim Burton-y looking tent fabric. And they start to back up towards the edge of the tent. There is a half- black half white painted acrobat just pressed up against the tent blending into it perfectly camouflaged she's like, she's like a contortionist yeah this contortionist like does a sort of like back bend and that's the moment when you realize she's there you can't see her until she contorts away from the fabric and starts crawling on her like hands and feet she's crab walking she's wearing sia's wig <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's like a, it's Sia if she had, like, this weird bisection, this, like, bilateral half-black, half-white paint and costume on. And it is, 
I would say maybe the best moment of visual, the best visual moment in the episode. I, I agree. I marked out big time when I saw that. But the payoff to this is the clowns just very flatly ask Akiko to hand over her phone for <laughs> yeah, violating like, the terms and conditions of the carnival, which she it's does. Really, it's really funny because up until this moment, the clowns have been like dramatic and scary and intense. And once she's cornered, they're like, When you entered the park, you agreed not to record anything you saw with the phone or camera. Thus, you forfeited the right to your own property. Fork it over. And they just look like adults who are going, man, come on, this is just a job for me. Yeah. She loses her phone, she loses her evidence, and then we cut to her brother. Hideo has been looking around for whoever is in charge, and eventually he is taken to Mr. Top Hat's trailer. When we meet Mr. Top Hat here, he looks like he's having some sort of mental breakdown in the mirror, which is interesting. He's, he's It's a very um, Professor Quirrell from Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone moment. He's yeah. staring into a mirror talking to maybe himself and he's like she's here i know he's talking to someone that we can't see or hear and he seems very stressed and we know that he's thinking about and talking about rachel uh and that is when bartholomew escorts hideo into the the trailer what is this this is like a yeah trailer and they torture hideo somehow it's not clear what happens we just cut to the outside and we see magic happening from within we cut away from Hideo, and the last group that we need to deal with is Rachel and Gavin in the Tunnel of Alu. Speaking of throwbacks to the original series, Rachel and Gavin board the Tunnel of Love. We get more uh, meet-cute banter between them. Mm-hmm. They're asking, so, did you have a boyfriend back home? No. Do you have a girlfriend? No. Uh, they're, like, rubbing knuckles. And then, all of a sudden, she sees the magic coin, the scorpion skull gold coin, is under the water... In this sort of like Pirates of the Caribbean style dark room log ride thing that they're on. And she's trying to reach it, but she can't. She's like, got, she's up to her like shoulder trying to, but she's afraid she'll fall out of the boat. So Hunka Hunka Gavin wraps his arms around her arm, looks her in the eyes and says, don't worry, I got you. Nothing bad will happen. She reaches into the water. When all of the fucking sudden she is attacked by the zombie from Dead Man's Float. Or a motherfucking water zombie. Or a water zombie. Could be a reference to either or both. But this terrifying, rotting corpse bursts out of the water and attempts to pull her in. And then another one comes out and attacks Gavin. Yeah, I mean, this is like, these are, I would say effects-wise, they are, minus the fact, minus blood, because there's no color in this scene, really. It's very dark and it's lit with blue. Uh, minus blood coloring these are walking dead level of zombie prosthetics pretty pretty scary pretty good they burst out of the water they're trying to pull the kids in these two do not have a chance like if were it not for deus ex machina they'd be fucking dead oh they would be they'd be double dog dead uh but instead they wrestle with these zombies for a couple of minutes and then all of a sudden there's like smoke and lights and the zombies their movement becomes really stilted and robotic, and we discover that they are animatronics. Bull fucking shit. These things were grabbing them and pulling them into the water. Yeah, I mean, let's be clear. These are clearly these are... killbots. Yeah, these are, <laughs> these are killbots who have not reached their preset kill limit yet. Um, <laughs> today is going to be a good day for killbots. <laughs> Uh, it's two actors in prosthetics, but they, when the camera pans to a different angle, you see that their lower bodies have like fake robot parts, like C-3PO stomachs and they pretend to be animatronics and they dive back down into the water and the kids are like, oh, it was, 
all part of the show. And they play it cool, and they act like, I knew it was robots the whole time. I knew it was fake. Yeah, no big deal. Uh, and then they go meet up with their friends. Yeah, everyone comes back from their little adventure looking dejected. They haven't really accomplished anything. Uh, they see Hideo fresh from his, his encounter with Mr. Top Hat. He looks like he's been brainwashed. Yeah, he's uh, been lobotomized. But everyone agrees to go home and they'll try this again tomorrow. And Gavin assures Rachel that, oh, no, they're not going to kick her out of the Midnight Society. Don't worry. And we yeah, get a neat next... moment between them as they're leaving the carnival that I think you wanted to talk about, Eli. This is also one of my favorite moments in the episode. Uh, last week, we talked about how much we enjoyed all of the behind-the-scenes mythology of the Midnight Society that was being built up. That was something that I was really worried about going into this series. And we talked about this months ago or like years ago you know the fact that this property we loved was going to be changing and and what would they be doing and would we be learning more about the midnight society and that was a, a point of concern for me because you don't know if they're going to screw it up or not you know they could definitely jk rawling this shit gavin hands rachel a pocket knife with the letters tms carved into the the wood uh, handle of it and he's like hey listen when i first joined the midnight society two years ago a former member gave this to me he said it had been passed down through members of the Midnight Society for as long as he could remember. And as long as I'm a member of the Midnight Society, you're going to have a place. We're not going to kick you out. We're all here with you. And I want you to have this. And he passes this heirloom on to her. Dykus, what the fuck is that? I assume it's the knife she's going to use to kill Mr. Top Hat, right? What is the? This is the first piece of... Midnight Society, I guess aside from the masks, this is the first new piece of Midnight Society lore that we've really received, right? Yeah, this is the only bit of backstory about the Midnight Society that we get in this episode after we got a, a, a bunch of, of lore and, and background last time. I, I And I enjoyed this. I enjoyed hearing him talk about how, yes, this Midnight Society does go back decades and decades, and they have you know these, these heirlooms that they pass down. So now let's talk about my motherfucking headcanon. Okay. That knife is Frank's. Oh, see, I was reading rumors online that it was Gary's. Uh, maybe, but if it was Gary's, you know he got it from his boyfriend. <laughs> it would make much more sense to be Frank's. Frank is definitely the, the kind of guy who doesn't leave home without a knife. We can trace the lineage of that knife, right? Like, when Frank had to move away, he rode his bike to Gary's house, and he was trying to act tough and cool like it was no big deal that they were going to be saying goodbye, and he's like, listen, this was... This is, this is the knife I used to stab kids. I want you to have it. <laughs> and he gives it to Gary. And this they is the kiss. knife I used to kill what's his name from season one. <laughs> yeah, this is the knife. This knife has Eric's blood on it. <laughs> so it's part of the Midnight Society now. He gives it to Gary. They kiss. Frank rides away. Gary puts it in his underwear drawer next to his poems about Sam. And years later, when he moves off to college, he does not know that his little brother Tucker steals that knife out of his underwear drawer when he's snooping around for things. And that knife then jumps from Midnight Society to Midnight Society until it makes it to Rachel. Headcanon complete. I can't argue that. It must be true. It must be true. I want to believe. <laughs> so everyone, please go to change.org <laughs> forward slash Gary Kisses <laughs> Gary kisses Frank and gets a knife. Gary kisses Frank when? <laughs> and please help me make my headcanon real. We'll tweet at DJ McHale about this. No. <laughs> no, I, I love this little bit with the, with the knife, whatever its origin may be. There are so many props that I'm going to try to recreate now. Like, I just have so much work in, ahead of me. 
the next day. <laughs> Talk about a tonal shift here. Yes. Uh, we get the weirdest moment in the episode, which I, I absolutely adore. Maybe because I was high on the knife moment. But uh, Rachel has been promised by Gavin that they're going to walk to school together in the morning. And it's a very sort of, like you said, meet cute kind of moment. Like he's planning a, a walk to school date with her. And she comes downstairs because there is a knock at the door. And she's like, Mom, don't worry. It's for me. It's Gavin. And her mom loves little Gavin. So she says, oh. And she answers the door to find Gavin's dad. <laughs> yes. Uh, Brandon Ralph, former Superman, is playing the part of Jason Schwartzman playing the part of <laughs> Gavin's dad. <laughs> oh, my God. Have you ever seen a more accurate Jason Schwartzman cosplay? No. <laughs> no, I have not. <laughs> of all of the I want you to I want you to go into your mind palace and open up the filing cabinet where you keep all of the images of Jason Schwartzman cosplay you've seen <laughs> at all of the natural comic cons you've gone to. <laughs> no, it, that is exactly what he looks. I mean, he looks like a cross between Jason Schwartzman and Adam Driver. <laughs> It looks like Brandon Ralph got the uh, black suit from Spider-Man 3 and is going through his emo phase. Man, Rachel's mom in this scene just cannot keep it in her pants. Sorry to bother you. I'm Theo, uh, your neighbor, Gavin's father. Hello there, Gavin's father. Ah, uh, you can just call me Theo. Oh. Uh, is there a, a Mrs. Gavin's father? No, 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 not anymore. Oh, the plot Mom! Why did you decide to grace us with your presence this morning? I haven't watched any other Nickelodeon shows in a long time, but I have to assume this is the horniest moment on children's television, right? <laughs> like, this looks like it's about to turn into a softcore porto. <laughs> <laughs> Cue the, the Are You Afraid of the Dark porno theme. <laughs> um, so... Yeah, she is, like, flirting with his dad. It's really weird, and his dad reveals that when he got up this morning, Gavin was not in his bed, which means that Gavin did not make it home after the carnival. And Rachel has the terrifying realization, she says, oh god, he took him. And her mom says, who took him? And she's like, mom, Mr. Top Hat, the ringleader from the Carnival of Doom, stole Gavin. And she says, Mr. Who? Carnival of what? I love yeah. this I love this twist. Rachel's mom does not remember the carnival. Rachel... Goes by herself to school. None of her friends remember the carnival. It's just like it was. It is just as it was in her story. Everyone has totally forgotten that this carnival even existed, except Rachel. Rachel hops on her bike, leaves school, and goes straight to the fairgrounds. And it's like the carnival, once again, was never even there. Except for a single black scorpion that she sees on the ground. And fucking crushes. And crushes it soullessly. Under her foot, there is, like, thin peanut butter. She looks down, she is, I guess, proud of what she has done, and says, I'm going to end this. I'm going to kill you, Mr. Top Hat. It's, she doesn't say that explicitly, but it's, it's understood. I'm going to rip your dick off with my bare hands. I'm going to cut your dick off with Frank's <laughs> knife. <laughs> she, she looks directly into the camera and says, Beethoven, bite Mr. Top Hat on the wiener. <laughs> Cue indie-ass theme song. <laughs> That is act two of this three-act story. Eli, what did you think of, of this one? Um, man, I really enjoyed this. It doesn't have as much, like, ex 
exposition moment as the first one. It doesn't have as much character building. It just has sort of a lot of fast-paced moments. Like, the, the tension is high. A kid is missing. The carnivals come to town. The tension is, like, ratcheted up in this episode in a way that is really good. We talked about how the first episode didn't really feel like an episode of Are You Afraid of the Dark because it was so different. It wasn't about the interior of the story. It was about the exterior. It feels like we are now in the interior of an Are You Afraid of the Dark episode. Uh, and I thought that was great. I agree. This is this is much lighter on story this time around. But if, if I, I saw some people, not many, but there were some people who thought that the first episode was maybe a little bit light on the scares, a little bit light on the the supernatural stuff. Uh, and this episode felt like an attempt to uh, balance that scale out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the first part of this really was all of the characters coming together and establishing kind of the rules of this universe and what's going on. And now they've gotten into the thick of things and they don't really fuck around with that. Um, I, I thought it was fun from the beginning to the end. Yeah, this episode, just like the first one, is really well directed. I loved a lot of the cinematography here. A lot of great lighting and colors in the Carnival of Doom. Everything looks, everything has this sort of unnatural, you know, toxic neon look to it. Yeah, there's a, a long time ago, I was uh, reading an article about um, the movie Inception and how when it was pitched, the product, the producers or the, the you know, uh, Universal or whoever it was, was worried that it would be too confusing. And so Christopher Nolan made the smart choice of making it so that every time they moved into a different level of the dream, the weather was different. So like in one, it's raining and one, it's snowing, you know, all of these different things are happening. And that way, whenever the camera cuts back and forth between them, you know what layer you're on. And this kind of does the same thing when they're in the carnival where it's like, okay, two of the kids are on a Ferris wheel ride and they're just stuck there. And that's like one level of the pacing here. And then two of the kids are inside of a scary moat ride. And that's another level of the pacing. And then two of the kids are just being like fucking chased by a bunch of clowns. They do this really good job of none of the moments being too similar, despite the fact that they're all happening at the same time. And like everything is different and interesting in its own way. And I thought that that was really well done. I agree. If I had to level any sort of complaint against this episode, I will say I've, I found the irritating characters more irritating this time than in the first episode. We glossed over it. Graham gets a lot of cheesy lines in this episode, and it did start to wear on me a little bit by the end. Yeah, Graham is like really cornball, and I'm not sure why they think that that's necessary. I sometimes think that in kids writing, like when you want to show the sort of the differences between different social groups of kids, you just make the cool kids really preoccupied with being cool and you make the nerdy, awkward kids like annoyingly, gratingly nerdy and awkward. And I mean, like, I guess that's not totally unrealistic. Those sorts of people do exist. I just don't want to deal with them in my television. And then, like we said, the scene with Rachel's mom at the end is... I mean, I don't know. I'm kind of coming around to it, actually, now that I now that I think about it. It's a Ron Oliver moment in a DJ McHale episode. <laughs> like, it's camp. It, it's funny to think that just not a lot happens in this episode. Not a lot. Is, like, it's part one takes place over the span of like a week. This yeah, takes place this, literally in like 24 hours. Yeah. The kids like they get out of school. They go to the carnival. I think that night. Yeah. It's very, very quick. I mean, when Rachel was telling her story to the Midnight Society in the first episode, the one thing that I thought was, there's not a lot of meat on those bones. 
And then this is just a recreation of that stretched out over the, you know, 45 minute episode. So there's not a lot of meat on these bones. And until that final twist, it doesn't feel like they accomplished anything. Like they had this this whole, you know, arc where they rejected Rachel and then they returned to Rachel and then they're going to go on this mission. And then nothing was really accomplished. The one thing that I will say about that is, you know, maybe we share we have a difference of opinions on that. Um, I liked that. It makes this feel like Majora's Mask to me. How so? Like, you make all of this progress, you do all these things, and then it resets. And the only thing you have after the reset is your knowledge that you acquired in that moment. And you have to use that to move forward. And I think that's kind of cool here. Like, it makes Rachel's situation seem hopeless, and it really stacks the deck against her in a way that raises the stakes for this finale. Like, Mr. Top Hat can alter time and space in a way that she can't. And... Everything she's done so far has amounted to nothing. So the stakes in this finale have to be really, really high. And in that regard, yes, this is as act two of this three act story. It does that. It raises the stakes and sort of ends on a a low note where Gavin is gone and and seemingly no one can help her now. So let's talk now about, uh, well, I guess before, I don't know. Should we answer the question? Let's or should we answer talk the about... question. Yeah. Dykus... You scared of this? Uh, I'm going to give this a yes. Um, if I, ga- I gave last week a yes, but it was a tepid yes, I'll admit. This tried a lot harder to scare the viewer, going all out with the creepy clowns, the, you know, water zombies. Uh, this made a really solid effort, and I have to give it a, a hard yes. Yeah, I think that the only thing this episode was missing that I was disappointed about is if they're going to retread, you know, story points from the first episode, I wish we could have seen that guy with no eyes again. Like, that was the scariest part of the last episode. And in this episode, he just has eyes the whole time. Uh, But otherwise, the clowns, the woman in the tent, the water zombies, even the scene where two kids are just sitting on a Ferris wheel that's not moving managed to be pretty scary. Like, I'm someone who's afraid of heights, and every time I'm on a Ferris wheel, I do think... This could fall and I could die. Every time I get in a plane, I think, this could crash and I could die. So, like, even that moment was good for me. And I thought that that was all uh, pretty, pretty expertly executed. And so, yeah, I, too, am scared of this. Eli, what was uh, you were going to make a point before we we gave our verdict. What were you going to say? Yeah, we need to talk about this is sort of the first time we've had a complete cliffhanger that we're going into while we're recording our show. What does everything that we've seen so far mean in the lead up to the finale? Like, what do you think you want to see happen or what needs to happen or what do you hope will happen in the finale based on what we've got? And are we in a good place right now? Like, are you excited about this? Are you worried? I'm just curious, since we've only got one episode left, this we are about to review the last known episode of Are You Afraid of the Dark? And we don't know shit about it. And I want to know your thoughts on that. I'm eager to learn a little bit more about Mr. Top Hat. For as much as we mention him in this episode, he he probably has less than five minutes of screen time. And I think, I think there's, that he's a character they've used very efficiently so far. Yeah. Um, I'm eager to find out what his deal is. I, I mean, the episode is called Destroy All Top Hats. <laughs> so, How many does he have? <laughs> Do you think Rachel's going to kill Mr. Top Hat, or how do you think this is going to resolve itself? Well, you know, like you were saying, we haven't learned a lot about this character. We effectively know nothing about him. So it's 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 impossible for me to know what the goal is here, not just for her, but for him. Uh, it's so interesting. We just don't have a lot of plot, and that's that's so strange. 
this is a really high compliment to give this series, and I've kind of referenced this sort of thing earlier, but um, the way that I feel about Mr. Top Hat as a character right now feels very similar to the first time I read the Harry Potter books, where in the first one, there's this villain who's not really present, but is kind of just like lurking in the back of your mind and sort of shows up and then sort of shows up again in the second book in a different way and then sort of shows up again in the third book in a different way. And that's what Mr. Top Hat has been like. We are just given these small little bits of information about his powers and his character and what he's pursuing, what his goals are. But we know so little of that. And like we have to have a book four, five and four, five, six and seven moment with Mr. Top Hat all in 45 minutes next week where we know maybe his origins, maybe his objectives, maybe how you kill him like there's so much that we just don't have, and I think that that's really interesting. I mean, I presume you kill him by destroying his top hat if the if the title is anything to go on. Right. All of his horcruxes are top hats. He has <laughs> split he has split his soul into seven parts and put it in seven top hats. Makes it sound easy, but he actually owns a hundred, so good luck. Really, like I said last week, I hope this doesn't end in some sort of meta this was all part of a bigger story. I, I feel like that's really predictable. I hope they, they surprise me. That's you don't want you don't want to see like Rachel stabs Mr. Top Hat with the knife and then like she pushes him into a campfire and then the 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 picture fades to a different campfire with no bodies in it and zooms out and Gary is sitting there and on the other side of the campfire is Frank listening to Gary talk and Gary says the end if that's the ending, then yeah, that's the best. Then we are living in the best universe, and I was wrong. <laughs> and they're both adults, and Frank is wearing a denim vest with, like, frayed sleeves, but now he's got, like, huge guns and a campfire tattoo on one side and a stone thrown on the other, and they're roasting Franks. If that's what happens, then I'll eat my hat. <laughs> you'll eat, you'll destroy your top hat. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I guess all of this to say, I'm really excited. They have a shit ton of work to do, but I'm eager to see if they can pull it off. The problem with sort of like mystery box things like this, you know, to, to reference J.J. Abrams, is that sometimes you make a lot of promises and then shit the bed in the end, to reference J.J. Abrams, um, you know, master bed shitter. I, I hope against everything that this pays off, because I've not been, I've not been as excited for an episode of Are You Afraid of the Dark? I've not been this excited for an episode of Are You Afraid of the Dark? Maybe ever. Well, hopefully all of our questions and more will be answered next week when we review the thrilling finale, Destroy All Top Hats. So join us this same time next week for our review of that episode and for my final appearance on the podcast. And presumably mine as well, but who knows what could happen. Uh, yeah, we will be back next week. We will review the final episode of Are You Afraid of the Dark that currently exists or will be existing. Uh, and then we will probably be saying some sort of goodbye. Uh, thank you guys for being with us thus far. Uh, is there anything else we need to discuss before I grab this bucket of water and dump it on that there campfire between us? Uh, I don't think so. Oh, Eli. I do want to say, did I tell you that I got I got my uh, stickers in from our friend Brett Wilson? Oh, no, you didn't. 
Yeah, I got my stickers. Uh, I'm not in case anyone has missed any of our uh, bonus episodes that we did a couple weeks ago or a month ago. Friend of the show, friend of mine, Brett Wilson is a sort of cartoonist, artist, illustrator um, who has been drawing images for every episode of Are You Afraid of the Dark? He's working on getting a book out where he reviews them and shares his illustrations. He also has created a bunch of Are You Afraid of the Dark stickers, and he actually created stickers based on our requests when we did the Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark review um, in September. So he created a Stone Throne sticker, a Campfire sticker, and a... uh, (laughs) and a... Zebo's Big House the Sega Genesis video game box uh, based on our request. And so I bought those. Uh, I bought the campfire, the the stone throne with the midnight dust, the Zebo's big house. I have the uh, crimson clown. I have the ghastly grinner. I have, oh, he did the hand holding the match for us. That's, I'm, I need to upload that and make it our new logo. Uh, and then I have his Zebo and his goth. Yeah, just in time. Those are all going to grace one of my laptops. I've got I they're so precious to me now that I don't want to, like, put them in the wrong spot. So I haven't put them on anything yet. But as soon as I do, I'll share pictures on our page. Yeah, definitely go check out his stuff. Like I said, that's going to be his hand holding the match is going to become our official logo as soon as I get the t- as soon as I get over my shingles and get the time to uh, put that up. So I'm really excited about those. Thank you to Brett for those. Everybody check his stuff out. Um, and beyond that, I think we're ready to uh, to call it, to declare this episode of You Scared of This closed. So are you going to have a shingles party so that all the other, you know, young adults in Austin can go ahead and get shingles out of the way? I almost did that last night. We were going to a game night with some friends and my shingles are so mild (laughs) that I just didn't think about them. And at the last minute, like two minutes before we left the house, I text my friend. I was like, hey, is your is your pregnant wife in danger of getting my shingles? And we had to Google it to make sure I could go to this party. Like, no, it's cool. So... We, we literally asked everyone when we got there, like, has everyone had chicken pox? That's the tale of the shingle, po- the shingle pox. 